Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink, offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Guys, so good to uh, be with you again uh, as we continue on in our Joy Has a Name series, uh, looking at the book of uh, Philippians. And, and we've called the series uh, Joy Has a Name uh, because joy is one of the key themes of the letter. Uh, we see the Apostle Paul's uh, joy in what we just had read for us. Perhaps you missed it. This is, this is what he says. He says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. It's a very happy letter. Yet yeah, in a series focused on joy, based on a letter filled with joy, uh, the Apostle Paul also says these words. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Hmm. Nevertheless, I am really excited to be speaking uh, on a, a series on joy uh, because I myself have grown up around some of the most uh, joyful people that you can imagine. Uh, chief among them, I would say, for me, is my, my grandma, my grandma. I've spoken about her before. Uh, she has been a huge influence in my life, uh, tremendously godly, and like all Nigerian grandmothers, uh, tremendously joyful as well. In fact, here's a picture of my grandma, joyful at her birthday party. Here's a picture of my grandma, joyful at our wedding. Here's a picture of my grandma as she brought her joy to Hove Seafront. Here's a picture of grandma, joyful in the cinema. And lastly, here's my grandma being joyful on Brighton Pier. And it got me thinking, this passage is actually a lot like my grandma. Superficially, actually quite frightening, but when you delve a little deeper, you're confronted with a wealth of, of joy. And I think just like my grandma, work out your salvation with fear and trembling is, is misunderstood. And I'll tell you why. I think if you were to ask the average person in Brighton, um, what they thought the message of Christianity was. I think the majority would probably say a version of 
work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In, in, interpreted as, if you want to go to heaven when you die, uh, you should probably work quite hard uh, in doing good deeds so that at the end of your life, you're deemed to be kind of 51% good. Now, this, this is not the message of Christianity. It's the, the opposite of the message of Christianity. But I think that that kind of thinking would, would score very highly. Uh, and, and, and some would go further still. There'll be some uh, that amongst us, if you like, in the, the, the place on earth that we live in, in, in Bryson and the surrounding areas, there would be some that would call this particular verse uh, sinister. There'd be some that uh, kind of would go further and say, this verse and verses like it are the problem. Because that's what religion's about, isn't it? It wants to make you fear and tremble. It's, it's the way that religion kind of controls you. And the truth is, we, we, we must not be naive. Uh, we, we, we want to be cultural missionaries, missionaries like Jesus, who would come down from heaven, down to earth, and understand the culture, understand the, it, the, the pe people, the inhabitants of the earth. And so we, we would do well to understand how verses like this might hit those that we love and do life with. And if you're watching at home now and you hear for the first time, maybe work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let me say this. I understand how that might hit you. But let me let me answer the objection. And it is an important objection. The objection about control. I'll say this. Far from the Bible looking to control you by making you fearful, the Bible's actually looking to release you by making you fearless. Fearless like the Apostle Paul, who, who, who writes this letter in prison, chained to a guard, and contemplating, literally, his impending execution. Uh, this is what he says. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, that is, to be martyred, Upon the sacrificial altar of your faith, I am glad. And I rejoice with you all. Uh, Paul is facing a beheading and he's whistling. Again, the Bible's not looking to control you. <laughs> it's looking to set you free from some of life's concerns, even life's serious, life-threatening concerns, to give you peace and freedom. And in so doing, Paul, Paul reveals for us a paradox. That there is a certain kind of fear that will make you fearless. And there's a certain kind of delight, excuse me, there's a certain kind of trembling that might just fill you with delight. And for us to get there, I think that there are kind of two phrases that we really need to grasp. And those phrases are salvation and Fear and trembling. And so this is what Paul says. He says, Paul says, work out your own salvation. Uh, when the New Testament um, talks about salvation, it usually does so in a more kind of broad way than we might do. We, if, if you're a Christian, um, you, you hear the word salvation perhaps, and your first impulse uh, maybe is, are they in or out? Are they saved or not saved? Have they prayed the prayer to become a Christian? That's 
often our immediate kind of impulse when we hear that word. But the way that the New Testament uses the word salvation is actually far more uh, broad than that. Um, it, it's the way the word is used is actually almost identical to the way we might use the word adoption. In fact, in fact conceptually, um, they are more or less the same, the same thing. So that if a person is being adopted, there is uh, kind of, there's a legal process that, that needs to be adhered to. There's, there's, there's paperwork, there's a decision to be made. There's a, there's a moment where access is decisively granted. And, and that is no doubt very important. But to reduce adoption simply to, to that <laughs> would be to miss the whole point and purpose of adoption. The same is true of salvation, uh, because the substance of adoption is the dignity, is the security, is the, is the acceptance, is the, is, the, is the love that an adopted child receives as they begin to work out what it means to be part of a new family. Adoption is so much more than the beginning bit. It's the whole reality of a new life. And, and that's what Paul is getting at when he uses the word salvation here. So therefore, by Paul saying, work out your own salvation, uh, Paul isn't saying, having been in, you better perform some good deeds now, lest you be out. No, P Paul is saying, because you are so in, through faith in Jesus Christ, Devote yourselves to working it out. And Paul is concerned. Uh, Paul, Paul has a concern. Uh, one of Paul's great concerns for the believer. Uh, Paul's biggest concern, perhaps, for you watching this. It is not that you might lose your salvation. No. <laughs> Paul's great concern is that you might not enter into the fullness of the salvation that has been given to you. Paul's concern is that you might not take hold of all that is yours in Christ to the very fullest measure. Broadly speaking, I, I think there's two ways we might do this as well. I think there's two realities at play that might stop us from entering into the more. Uh, and they are to, to doubt your salvation, and the other is to squander your salvation. Uh, to doubt your salvation is, is being so uh, concerned that because you sin, God might one day disqualify you. It's kind of like being, being on a bridge and, and not being sure whether it's going to hold your weight so you don't progress any further to the other side. Doubting your salvation. Another way it is to, to squander your salvation. This is, this is different. This is to believe that you're saved. I'm going to heaven. This is to believe that the bridge is strong, but it's kind of to be passive, to be lukewarm. It's to be, um, yeah, okay, but I, I'm not, not, not going to pursue him. <laughs> I'm not going to chase after him and follow him. You, you may go to church, one in four, one in six. You, you may not go to a small group or be a part of life or serve on a team to help make church happen. It, it, it could look like that. You're not seeking the kingdom first. To doubt our salvation, to squander our salvation. Which one is it for you? 
The truth is there's, there's more for all of us, all of us, every single person in the world, there's more because there are infinite riches in Christ. So which of the two do you think might be hindering you in how you think in relation to your salvation? No, God is a, God is a father. God is a, a good father. And, and what father amongst us would take their child to the, to the playground only for them to stand at the gate? No, there's more for you, dear friend. There's more. And how do I, how do I then receive them all? Okay, um, you've convinced me that, that I, okay, there's more for me to be enjoying. And, and, uh, but how do I get there? This is exactly what Paul is saying. <laughs> the way you get there, the way you move in this is to work out your salvation. Are you struggling with sin? Untangle what your salvation looks like. Are you dealing with anxiety? Grasp what your salvation looks like. Are you not in good relationship with a brother or sister? Figure out what your salvation looks like. Is your prayer life lacking? Crack what your salvation looks like. Are you weary of serving in church? Decipher what your salvation looks like. Do Bible passages that you read, do you struggle with them to, to understand them? Wrestle with what your salvation looks like. Has your love for Christ grown cold? Get to the bottom of what your salvation looks like. Paul, Paul's not saying in all this, work for your salvation. No, he's saying work out your salvation. Work it out. And this requires activity. <laughs> it requires action. It requires investment. It looks like worship. It looks like taking tough decisions. It requires community. It requires small group leaders. It requires elders. It requires perseverance. It requires faith. It requires keeping short accounts of confession and repentance. It replies, as Paul said, it requires, as Paul says, holding fast to the word of life, which is to take seriously, take to heart the words of this book. It might require spreadsheets. It might require pen and paper. It might require cancelling subscriptions. It might require uninstalling apps. It might require installing software. It might require confessing to a friend. It might require reading books and articles. It might require accountability buddies. It might require fasting. Paul says, work out your own salvation. Why? For it is God who works in you to will and work for his good pleasure. For his good pleasure. And you may say, do you know what? To will and to work for his good pleasure. I'm not really experiencing that though. It, it, it seems like God is saying that I want to follow him and I, I, I want to live the Christian life. But actually what I find is, I'm just too often drawn back to my old life and the things that I think God probably wouldn't be very happy with. Well, dear friend, let, let me say this, that I think nearly all, every Christian goes through those seasons in, in life. And, and if you feel like you've been in that season, if you think you're in that season right now, I'd say two, two suggestions for you, dear friend. The first is to pray for God to fill you with his Holy Spirit. We, we believe in that doctrine. We believe in that. And the second is to, to ask God. 
Go up to God, ask him, Lord, would you, would you give me, would you, uh, excuse me, would you give me more of Philippians chapter 2 verse 13? Lord, please work in me. Help me to see more of this. Help me to see uh, a, a more of a desire for you, a, a willingness to work and serve in, in your kingdom. Help me, Lord, for the sake of my joy. You only need to ask. It's his will. He's promised it. And the way he'll do it is, is he'll give you new taste buds. <laughs> Uh, the truth is, uh, through sin, uh, the Bible would say that our, our taste buds are, are dark and, and dull and dead. Which means when good food and good drink comes in, we, we, we can't really discern it. We can't taste it. It, it could be the, some of the best stuff going, but we just kind of like, it's uh, being part of a small group or, 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 or having a worship time with the Lord by myself. Uh, well, yeah, you can't really taste it. And so what God does uh, do is he comes in and he repairs your old taste buds and gives you new taste buds. So that when the good food and good drink does come in, you're able to taste it for what it truly is. Wow, wow, this is good. <laughs> Where has this been all my life? I've, I've, this has never been a big deal. This is a And you start to really understand because why is God doing it? He's doing it because he wants to give you a greater capacity for joy, greater wells, greater experiences of joy, which is why it gives you these taste buds to enjoy it. But you, you need these new taste buds. They come from the Lord, which is something of what it's saying here, that he causes you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. You start to desire what he desires. You start to want what he wants. This is how Jesus puts it in John chapter 15, verse 11. This is Jesus. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my, my joy might be in you. And your joy might be full. It's all about joy. My joy might be in you and your joy might be full. Jesus wants you to have the fullness of joy. He wants you to have greater measures of joy and peace. He, Jesus could have said, these things I have spoken to you that my taste buds might be in you. Because what tastes good to Jesus begins to taste good to you. What tastes bad to Jesus? Ugh. Sin ugh, ugh, starts to taste bad to you. So, dear friends, don't rob yourselves. Don't rob yourselves. It's all yours. It's yours to appropriate, yours to pull down, yours to take hold of, yours to dig into, yours to apprehend, yours to work out. All things are yours. Every spiritual blessing. But then Paul says how, how we are supposed to work out our salvation. And he says, with fear and trembling. <laughs> fear and trembling. It sounds a little bit like a fairly villainous solicitor's firm to me. Uh, fear and trembling. Um, but first of all, first thing to say is, not all fear is that fear. Not all fear is that fear. Paul's not talking about the fear that you experience if you, if you kind of realise that you're in peril. Paul is talking about the fear you experience when you realise that you've been delivered from peril. And we see this kind of fear in, in a few places in the Bible. One such place is Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, we see Jesus and the disciples in a boat on a lake. 
and there's a storm that comes and <laughs> it, was a, it was a big storm uh, because the disciples, some of whom were trained fishermen and would have seen many storms in their life, thought that they would die. They, th they feared for their lives. What does it say happened next? It says that they called out to Jesus. <laughs> and and, and what, what Jesus then did was he stood up and told the storm off. <laughs> and, and the storm heard the voice of its creator and obeyed. It's, it's almost like the storm was like, shh, 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 it's him. Wind and waves fear Jesus. What the disciples then experienced that day as they saw Jesus in action <laughs> was the fear that creation has for its maker. What does it say happened next? It says, and the disciples were afraid and they marveled. They were afraid and they marveled. Because when you begin to understand how Jesus uses this otherworldly authority, that he, he uses his authority not to, 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 to lay you out because of your sin, but to lay his life down because of your sin, calming the storm of the wrath of God towards your sin. When you begin to understand the mercy God has had on you in Jesus Christ, it is scary. It is scary. This, this is something of what the disciples experienced in the boat that day. And they were afraid and they marveled. They were afraid of the storm, but they were afraid of Jesus. And we're not talking about the, the kind of fear whereby you, that makes you want to run away from Jesus but the kind of fear that makes you want to run towards Jesus and that you'll feel bones to cry out, I never, ever want to leave you. It's the kind of fear that you experience when you realise, like the disciples, Jesus has just saved your life. This is a deeply joyful experience. So, so joyful, in fact, that the Bible says that the angels, they, 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 they can't fathom it, they can't understand it. An angel can't understand what went on in the boat that day. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 12 says that these are the things that angels long to look into. <laughs> and it's this mingling of, of joy and fear in one experience that, that, that allowed these same apostles to... to that, empowered them to, to go out, preach the gospel into the whole world yeah. and ultimately be martyred one by one, history records, with the exception of one. Uh, this kind of mingling of joy and fear in one experience it is the same uh, fuel that propelled a man and changed a man called Saul of Tarsus, a murderer, into Paul, apostle of Christ, Jesus a man unshaken by being poured out 
like a drink offering and killed, but utterly shaken by the mercy he's received in Jesus Christ. Amazing love. And can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? An angel can't understand this. But you can. But you can. Then Paul moves on to, to grumbling, uh, which after such a high theology uh, <laughs> uh, might seem like an anticlimax. Um, but, but, but it's not. It, it, it's actually application. Uh, Paul is now applying his theology to uh, the very practical issue of, of grumbling. This is what Paul says. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine like lights in the world. Uh, and let me say this. You may think that that's a bit random, okay? Like, of all the sins that Paul could now be talking about, like, the worst things that are happening in the world, Paul talks about grumbling. Like, what, why that here? Is this grumbling even that big of a deal? And what I would say is um, grumbling is a, a pretty big deal in, in my house. I am the uh, proud uh, father of a, a four-month-old uh, four uh, boy uh, who is probably uh, crying right now um, in his, uh, with my wife at home. And, uh, and uh, let me say this. If you've ever had a, a four-month-old going through the four-month sleep regression, you have ample opportunity to be tempted to, be, to, to grumble. Um, I have opportunity as well. I am tempted to grumble every time I smell a full nappy. I am tempted to grumble every time the last sterilised dummy falls to the ground as if by slow motion. And I am tempted to grumble every time I spend about 45 minutes rocking my son to sleep, gently laying him down in the cot, only for Amazon to press the bell and to wake him up and for me to have to do the whole thing all over again. I am tempted to grumble. And this is kind of why Paul mentions grumbling here, because it is a very common and prevalent sin. <laughs> if you haven't got a child, you're tempted to grumble. If you, if you have got a child, you, you might be tempted to grumble. If you, you haven't got a spouse, you might be tempted to grumble. If you have got a spouse, you might be tempted to grumble. If you haven't got any money, you might be tempted to grumble. If you've got lots of money, you might be tempted to grumble because you don't know where to put it and invest it. We are... <laughs> people that find it easy to grumble. And so Paul, Paul is nailing this on the head and showing us how to work out our salvation with this common issue. But, but, but more than that, really, uh, Paul is really hearkening back to uh, the Old Testament where um, uh, the, the people of Israel, the Old Testament people of God, they, they were brought out of uh, a slavery, a harsh Egyptian uh, slavery, and God promised them a promised land, a land of flowing with milk and honey that they would enjoy as part of their salvation. But the Bible says that that generation grumbled against the Lord and against Moses. Therefore, God, after their persistent grumbling, made it his business for none of those in that generation to inherit this land. And so Paul, by referencing uh, grumbling here, is, is hearkening back to uh, this, this Old Testament story because essentially what Paul is saying is uh, this generation of Israel serve 
as, a, as an example forever of people who didn't learn what it means to work out their salvation. They didn't work out their salvation. Did they lose their salvation? No, no. They were delivered out of slavery. They came out of oppression. They were free, but they didn't, they didn't enter into all that was theirs, the, 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 the land of milk and honey, this promised land that was promised to them. They, they missed out. They missed out on sampling the, the honey and drinking the milk. They, they missed out on seeing their children have a different experience to what they experienced in slavery. They missed out on their grandchildren running around in the safety and security of, of the promised land. Well, they saved, yes, but they missed out. They missed out, dear friend. Therefore, for, for those of us, for you watching, what is on the line here is, is, not, is not your deliverance, but something of your inheritance. And to miss out on that when it's laid up for you would be tragic. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Uh, uh, I guess you might say, so does Paul want us to just pretend like everything's okay when it's not? <laughs> Do all things without grumbling, he says. What? Uh, let me say this. No, that, that, that's not what Paul is, is saying here. Not, not at all. Um, God does have an outlet for this type of strong emotion, um, only not through grumbling. Uh, through lamenting, through lamenting. And lamenting is a thing. Uh, lamenting is a, a, a genre in the Bible. Uh, we see lamenting in Jeremiah. We see uh, lamenting in Ecclesiastes. We see lamenting in, in Job. We see lamenting in the book of Lamentations. We see lamenting in roughly one third of the Psalms. We see lamenting in Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus himself would lament over Jerusalem. And it's different from grumbling because uh, both... While both are real, both are raw, both don't hold back, uh, lamenting is an act of faith as you bring your complaint to, to God. Uh, grumbling, on the other hand, is, is an act of contempt that takes you away from God. In one, you, you, you trust God's goodness even in the pain. In the other, you, you doubt God's goodness in the pain. With lamenting, uh, God allows you to beat on his chest as hard as you can as he holds you and comforts you. Uh, with, with grumbling, you, you're just beating your head against a brick wall. There's no, there's no comfort. It just, it just compounds the pain. And then with this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, yes. But only because Jesus worked for your salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus faced the fear, the, the, the wrath of God, full strength, so that we might be forgiven of our sins. Jesus faced the fear and his body trembled as nails were sent through his hands and sent through his feet. He did it for the joy that was set before you, or the joy that was set before him, rather, so that you might one day stand before a great white throne, 
as you see earth and sky flee from the presence of the one who's seated on the throne in awe at him. And just as the verses immediately before this passage, the verses we looked at last week say, you will hear a voice of the one who is seated on the throne and you'll hear the name Jesus. And at that name of Jesus, your knee will begin to bow and your tongue with new taste buds will begin to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the books will be opened and judgment would commence. And as you stand before Jesus, as he judges your life, you will fear and tremble. You, you, as you begin to perceive the sheer extent of his extraordinary goodness and mercy through your life, it starts to, the fullness starts to, to dawn on you. <laughs> and what's he doing now? You see Jesus stand up and he begins to pronounce reward after reward after reward after reward over you. <laughs> you fall to your knees. But if you, if you don't come to Jesus, give him your life, if you don't follow him, you too will fear and tremble. But for a very different reason. As it's revealed to you, the sheer amount of goodness and kindness that Jesus had for you in your life that you rejected. So dear friends, for the sake of your joy, work out your own salvation. Yes, with fear and yes, with trembling. Because for, for the joy of the Lord to be our strength, the fear of the Lord must be our delight. Amen.